Rabbi, Happy New Year. Thank you very much. My, my buddy, um, 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 what are you, are you, are you partying? What's going on? Are you feeling good? Are you just, are you, is the tempo low right now? Cause we're about, you're about to hit the new year, right? So, so tell me, yeah. give me the scene. Is it real chill over in, in the rabbi's residence? What's going on? You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a little chaotic um, and it's a little, uh, it's, it's a little overwhelming, but um, yeah, you know, we hit Rosh Hashanah tonight. Uh, we're going to do service at seven o'clock and, um, you know, I'm inspired. Um, I'm inspired. I'm a little overwhelmed, especially being able to broadcast our high holiday services to, uh, largely a vacant sanctuary, um, uh, just out of safety and concern for all of our, all of our members who, um, who are part of the community. But yeah, it's, uh, I I'm, I'm ready for this year to be over. I, I'm ready for a brand new year starting tonight. Uh, my kids are super excited, uh, especially my oldest, uh, this morning who, had the wonderful opportunity to blast that shofar into my ear to wake me up, um, which is per our tradition, we are supposed to blow the shofar uh, leading up to Rosh Hashanah for the last 30 days. Um, so I, I give her, I give her a lot of, uh, a lot of kudos for um, using that shofar to wake me up this morning. And that almost that panic of, oh my goodness, it's here. It's here and it's tonight. But yeah, we're, well, we're, we're real excited. We're well, real kudos excited. Kudos to, to, your, to your child for doing that because I really want you awake for today's podcast. This, this, is, this is a good <laughs> one, buddy. And I know your brother is very happy about this podcast. My mom is very happy about this podcast uh, because our guest today um, has flown in through the digital webs all the way from Chicago um, here to the Priest and Rabbi podcast. Um, she is an award-winning author. Okay, get ready. Your brother is a writer. She's a writer. Uh, and she uh, is a Pulitzer Prize-nominated author, and she also went to the same boarding school that I went to, but she was a day student, so she got to drive her car into every day. Um, it is Rebecca Mackay. How do you feel about that, Rabbi? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm super excited. I'm I just blew the shofar in your ear with that one. You did just blow the shofar in my ear. I okay. like it. I think she just arrived. Rebecca Mackay, are, are, are you here? Are you here at the podcast? I am here at the podcast, man. Boom. Rebecca Mackay is here and uh, we're excited. We're, we're today, we, we, we will obviously want to get to know you more, um, but we want to do to get into a thing called uh, imaginative empathy um, and uh, how we can all be more, is it empathic or empathetic? I think they're both words. I think those are both, yeah. Equal, equal in weight? I think they're both words. <laughs> okay, how do we as a, as a society become more empathic? It's something that's important for us as people of faith, but for anyone, any human being, any child of God, it is uh, really instrumental for us to really understand and to grow and to find uh, unity in, in our community together um, on this earth. So we're looking forward to hear about this. And uh, so stick around, please um, subscribe to this podcast. And uh, if you, even if you hate it, leave a comment because that it does help the analytics. So if you do think it's really annoying to listen to this priest and rabbi, put it down there, but then, hey, we win because then, Apple Podcast says, hey, people are commenting on this and they share it more with others. So share it away. Uh, and we are excited to get rolling with a priest and a rabbi and Rebecca Mackay. A priest, a rabbi, a priest, a rabbi, a priest, a rabbi!
The opinions you hear from on this show do not represent WSTU, since they probably regretted over allowing the show on the air in the first place. Nor do they represent Temple Bay Payam or St. Mary's Episcopal Church, since they also wonder what the heck they did when they called these two men to lead their respective congregations. On that note, sit back, relax, grab your Bible or Torah, and enjoy another episode of A Priest and a Rabbi. All right, good morning, everybody, and welcome to another, another day of A Priest and a Rabbi. My name is Father Christian Anderson here in Stewart, Florida at St. Mary's Episcopal Church. And anything I say today definitely does not represent my church because they would probably fire me if it did. And then next to me is the most handsome rabbi you have seen this side of the Jordan River. It is Rabbi Matthew Durbin from Temple Bat Hayam here in Stewart, Florida as well. Rabbi, good morning. How are you, my brother? Your shirt looks like we're about to have a picnic. What's going on? Yeah, it, it, it's a it's a wonderful day here in sunny Florida. Um, you know, as as uh, as many may know, you know, tonight ushers in uh, a brand new year uh, for us as Jews, um, being Rosh Hashanah tonight. Um, and I think I think at least for me, uh, you know, the gift is uh, I'm, I'm ready for this year to end. Uh, I think we've had a lot of hardships and a lot of challenges this year, and I think uh, as Jews, we are poised and ready for what the future holds. And I think today, um, above all days, uh, is, is, is an amazing, amazing, amazing program, amazing show that we have for us. Um, I'm, I, I'm super pumped. I'm super excited. I'm super yeah, excited. We, we, yeah I, th- I think we struck gold with today's guest. Uh, you know, it, w- it was good when we had the viral dancing priest a couple weeks ago. Uh, last week, we, we, got, we got, uh, went into the, the military zone uh, in, in the political battle. This week, though, holy cow, check it out. Uh, we have a Pulitzer Prize-nominated author, none other than Rebecca Mackay. Uh, maybe you know her from her latest piece of beauty, which is uh, The Great Believers, but she has written m- many other things. Uh, but most importantly, though, she's also a graduate of Lake Forest Academy. I don't know if you guys know that place. Um, a great high school out in, well, Lake Forest, Illinois, which uh, she and I actually attended together. Rebecca, it's an hour earlier out there. You got up. You took so the, maybe, you maybe we changed the name of the program to tell us about the priest in his younger days. Oh, I will. Don't worry. <laughs> all right. So <laughs> all that being said, Rebecca McKay, hey. welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you. This is really fun. Yeah. So it is. Uh, so I actually reached out to Rebecca on Twitter. And, and Rebecca is one of those folks on Twitter who's got the little blue check mark who actually responds to what you say. And she's you, re- you really engage your people really well it's that's partly procrastination definitely but it's also um you know it's like what you do you're giving a message to people you can usually i mean i know zoom is weird but you see their faces you get pretty much real-time reaction you're writing a novel you're like alone with it for five years and you know there's your social life but you're just right the during the day you're writing into your computer. And so you take a break and you can actually talk to people and like, yeah, they're real. <laughs> my readers are real. My friends are real. It's, it's a nice break. And, and you do this uh, wonderful writing prompt where it's uh, the teacher in you. Uh, it, it is great that it really stimulates folks to start like coming up with ideas. You'll give like a four word or five word writing prompt. And you just put it out there and say, go, tell me where will you go with this? That's really awesome. 
it's fun. You know, a lot of writing prompts are very vague. They're like, write about a time you were sad. And I'm, mine are like, write about if a polar bear lived in your refrigerator, kind of, you know, um, for me, that's more interesting. Yeah. So if you guys are out there on the Twitter sphere, uh, following Rebecca is a, is, is a, is a good one to follow. It's, it's, it's not going to get you down. Um, she, she's always a very, it's very uplifting. You're very hopeful uh, person. It, it's good content and she will also stimulate your creativity. So Rebecca, for those who might not know of your brilliance, uh, let, let's get them started. So Rebecca is, is an author, um, also a teacher, but you're, you, you have really your, your, uh, Books and your writings have always garnered a lot of attention, but recently with The Great Believers, uh, this one has really seemed to break open um, the door for you to really allow everyone to know, hello, this is Rebecca Mackay. Um, and, uh, and, and you winning numerous awards and then being nominated for the Pulitzer is, you know, it's pretty much like going to the Super Bowl of, for, for authors. So um, what was that, 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 that process like when, you know, I just, I, I knew as a gal, we were in AP English together um, and I was suffering through it um, and to you, it was probably like a walk in the park. Um, but to go from there to here, uh, did you see this journey ahead of you? Were you like, yes, uh, this is what I want to do. I want to be a whole Pulitzer Prize nominated author when I grow up. What were you thinking back then? I know I wanted to be an author. I think that by the time we knew each other in high school, um, I I, I think that was something I had articulated, that I want to be a writer when I grow up. And what that would mean, that could mean a million different things. That could mean I review theater or something. I mean, there, there are so many ways to be an author. Um, but I was pretty bent on it. I really, I really saw what I wanted. And, you know, I mean, you know, we went to a great school where you could kind of do your thing and, and get a lot of support. Um, and uh, yeah, it was, I was a, what's funny we were in English class together constantly. Um, I was a really mediocre student everywhere else. <laughs> like, I don't think we had other classes together where you saw me just like floundering and like falling asleep. And English class was the one place where I was like into it, you know? Yeah, you, you were, you were, yeah, I remember you just, just crushing it everywhere, but you, you weren't, the other, the other classes weren't as smooth as, as English for you? Not as, no, definitely like math and science. Like I, not to be a, stereotype but I oh my god they were I was terrible um and you know I had other things I liked uh, we acted together a lot which was always fun I was I was trying to remember last night and I was remembering I think we were married in at least one musical I remember like screaming at you and dragging you around by the arm like being old people in in uh, the musical The Boyfriend that's that's it that suddenly came back to me and I was like oh my god oh my gosh was that The Boyfriend yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Yeah, that's great. So, so do you, do you do you put that on your writing resume? That oh, it's uh, like the top line. It's like education, and then High School Musicals right underneath it. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I still have that on there too. So, hoping that <laughs> you found. Um, so, so speaking of which, so that has now you've been able to bring both of your loves together, where now your writings are being optioned for scripts. In, yeah. in Hollywood. And so can you tell us a little bit about that as much as you can? Yeah, no, there are two things happening, actually. Um, one is my, my first novel, The Borrower, um, there's an independent film uh, company here in Chicago that is um, pretty much going full speed ahead on that right now as a small production. Really exciting. Um, and then um, for The Great Believers, uh, Amy Poehler's production company, Paper Kite. So people who know the book, this is a book, this is a novel about AIDS in the 1980s. So I always want to say she is not turning it into a comedy. Like, like do not worry. Um, but Paper Kite did Russian Doll recently on HBO. They've done drama. Um, 
as well. So um, they've optioned it and we have some amazing talent right now working on script development, arc development, getting ready to pitch um, as a limited series for cable. And uh, makes me really, really happy. You never, like, you, it's, Hollywood makes writing look like the most predictable, stable job in the world, right? In contrast, like you never know if something's going to get made, an actor flakes out at the last minute, you have no idea, but it's a fun ride. It's really, like I'm learning a ton and I get to hang out. I got to hang out with Amy Poehler. It's really yeah. cool. And do you get to, do they put you in the room? Are you able to make creative choices? Do they come to you and say like, are you totally involved in the whole creative process? Or are they saying, hey, for, we take it from here and we'll just check in with you from... Yeah, no, I um, I wanted to stay involved. I think you, you kind of have that choice early on. Right now, I'm talking a lot with the creative team, um, the writers and, and people who are um, doing that. I'm not writing it myself. I'm not a screenwriter. It's, it's a different craft. It's a different art. Um, but I um, once we, if we actually sell it to like an HBO, Netflix kind of place, that's when your role gets codified um, in that contract. And so at that point, you know, it could be that like Hulu loves it and hates me and wants me to have nothing to do with it. And then I can bow out or HBO is like, yes, and we're going to give you a cameo. That, <laughs> so, um, so we'll see. But, um, but right now I'm texting a lot and talking a lot with the, the writers. So uh, Rebecca, just 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 for 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 our listeners out there, um, and just to go uh, break it out a little bit a, a little bit further, you know, from a personal perspective, who inspired you? I mean, you know, through all the writing and the reading and 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 the prolific literature that was out there, you know, uh, is there a specific author or you know some piece of work that really inspired you to say this is this is what I want to dedicate my life towards? I wish there were, because it would be a really great soundbite for me. Um, but, you know, I think it was I, it was an accumulation of luck and good influence. My dad was a poet. He wrote in Hungarian, so you never heard of him. But, um, you know, there were I grew up in a house where writing was a viable career, where stuff was happening like that. Um, got a great education. Um, you know, I mean it turned me into a writer, like Christian, it turned you into a priest. So basically, like <laughs> it's, it's a little bit of like Rorschach test, right? On who are you to begin with? Yeah. Um, and uh, just, you know, had tons of support along the way, read great books along the way, had, you know, childhood authors I loved, but there was no, I, you know, I talked to some writers, um, quite a lot of writers, and there was some watershed moment of, you know, I hated English, I hated reading. And then in ninth grade, this one amazing teacher put this one amazing book in my hands. And um, for me, it's a little bit more like inheriting the family plumbing business. Like my dad was a poet, his mother was a novelist. Not that I got um, handed anything and not that that means I know how to do it, but just this is a thing that you might do. This is a viable career. Yeah, so you were, you were able to believe in it and saying, yeah, oh, yeah, I can do this. So there was a, there was a yes in front of you, not like, uh, Rebecca, are you sure you wanna do that? You, you might want a minor in marketing or business. Right, right. No, my mom's like practical advice to me was you might wanna major in English literature instead of writing. So you have something to fall back on. That was something her practical back. advice. Gotcha. Yeah, did. <laughs> All right, so let's, so since, since you're on a show uh, with, with a priest and a rabbi and the voice of the New York Mets, but we won't worry about that right now. Um, let's, let's talk about this. So in your 
in, in, in your, especially in the great believers, um, just in the title, you know, the, the belief, the belief that something, something good can come out of uh, the darkness. There's, there's, there is, would you say in the great believers, uh, there's a lot of faith that's involved yeah. or faith is a major theme in it. Yeah. Um, and so you yourself, I know people, I've read some articles where some have wondered if, if you were Jewish if uh, someone wonder if you were Christian. And uh, I know there was times in your life where people actually assumed you were Jewish, right? A lot of, a lot of people still do. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and I had to say, I was a very, very happy to see the Episcopal church made, made an appearance in the great believers that warmed my heart. That was, that was, Episcopal that was, that was, and Unitarian actually um, comes into play later, late in the book. There, there was a um, just fantastic Unitarian church in Chicago that was doing funerals when no one else would. Um, so there are those, you know, it's, it's not a book about religion, certainly, but it is a book about mortality, very much. And yeah, I think faith in, in all its iterations, faith not necessarily meaning religious faith, although it occasionally comes up, but faith in the bonds of your relationships, faith in um, the cause, faith in yourself, what, you know, there's, there's this constant question thematically of what do you believe in, for better or worse, um, there's a cult in the book too that's going on. So there, there's that happening. You know, is belief always a good thing? Is faith always a good thing? Um, and um, that question of things being tested, you know, is this real? How do we know if it's real? How do I know if this relationship is real? How do I know? There's this whole theme about visual art. How do I know if these paintings are real and authentic? How do I know if this test for HIV is real and works? How do I know? Um, and that's that's what I'm poking at. And I, I can't help but compare it to our, our current state, right, in, in 2020, um, just trying to have, not even talking about faith in a higher power, uh, just trying to have faith in, in the facts, trying to have faith of what's being told. Everything's kind of been questioned. So we're not even sure what to trust. And I know that, so you, you have characters who are saying, do these tests even work? Right, you got the you got the, you got the gentlemen. These these this great group of guys were falling around in Boys Town in Chicago, and you you hear them have this banter back and forth about the tests or about the actual um, how you can um, get HIV, and it's only through certain kind of acts, not all the acts. And um, it's 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 I know it's not the best comparison, but in, right now with COVID, people have the same kind of things. You know, you know. Yeah, it's, you can't get it from picking up this object or it's only when you're talking to people or the mask on mask off. Um, but again, faith, faith in what is truth. And we're always trying to seek what is truth. And that, that has been turned upside down over the last four years for sure. Um, of just trying to trust what, 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 it, what is real, what is truth. And I know in our business rabbi that, um, and we talked all about this yesterday in our, in our call that some people come to religion because they just really want truth. Just please tell me the truth. I need something to put my feet in and I can just say this, this is real, that I can go with this. Uh, and- um, But is that, is, that, is that faith or is that hope? Or is it both? Well, tell me the difference between hope and faith for you. Well, I mean, I think, I think, I think you know, faith is a belief and I think hope is the anticipation of that belief coming to fruition. It, it, it's, it's for us, the ability to look beyond ourselves and to look at a situation where it's a little bit more promising. Uh, I, I think, especially in 2020, we're in this in this mire that says, "How do we get out of it? How do we how do we look for that sunshine when you know it's 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 dark clouds among us?" I mean, you know, for for most of us, we've been in lack of a better term, we've been in quarantine for almost half a year. I mean, right now it's it's September. 
I mean, we went on lockdown in March, um, you know, and I think I think it gets us down so much that I think we do turn to other pieces, whether it be religion, whether it be our faith, whether it be uh, the element of hope, whether it be, you know, books and authorship that say, I just need something to distract myself from what's going on. That's interesting. That, that's a psychology that I was digging into as I wrote and as I researched this book um, that, you know, I, I'm I'm talking, there's a ton of research involved. I'm writing about AIDS in the 1980s. Um, you know, I was a kid in the 1980s. I was, I was aware, I was interested, but I was not out there in the scene, right? Um, so I, this, at this idea of writing about people, about lives and trauma that are not your own, it's, it's very hazardous, actually. A lot can go wrong. Um, and so I did a ton of interviews in order to write this book. And um, not to find stories, because I, I got the stories, but I need the psychology, I need the texture, everything. And the psychology of living through um, a, you know, a pandemic, of, of living through as the people mostly who I interviewed were either at risk for HIV, had HIV, were losing lovers, they were you know, intimately at risk. Um, and then that question of where do you turn? And there are people then who, you know, they turn to religion and all that, a little bit less common at a point when a lot of organized religions had already turned their back on the gay community. Mm. Um, so you have people turning to art, for sure, to theater. You have people turning a lot to self-medicating with drugs and alcohol. Um, it was really interesting. A lot of people I talked to, I'd be asking them some question and they go like, yeah, I don't really remember like 1989 to 1991 because um, of you know what they were doing to get through what they were putting in their bodies. Um, and there are people who you know had healthier coping mechanisms than others, people who turned to family if they could, people who turned to chosen family. But it's that kind of ultimate litmus test of your soul, right? Of like, here you are in utter crisis. Where do you go? What do you turn to? Yeah. So, so, so when when you when you write your stories and you write your characters, um, how do you separate yourself from it? I mean, I would assume because you invest so much of yourself into your writing that when it's you know writing's off and it's time for family or it's time for you know personal self care, how do you find? Are, are there mechanisms that you use? How does that work for you? Because I, I can only imagine writing about such a, a really challenging and difficult topic that once you're so absorbed in it, that the ability to separate and distract ourselves from it must be must be really challenging. Yeah, it is. It's, it's a hard switch to flip. Um, and it's hard. The, the inverse is hard, too, where if I have something really raw that I need to write, and I know that at any minute I could get interrupted by my kid who's packing her lunch in the next room. I, I can't really get into it. I can't go there. Um, for me, location is important. I do um, tend to, um, I, I make use of artists' residencies where you go, you apply, um, and you go and you stay somewhere for a couple of weeks. And you're just in a room and maybe every night you have dinner with some other artists, but you're just in it. Mm -hmm. um, or I, I use a different place. Right now I'm house sitting for someone. And when I go to that house, I write. And I can write at home too, but I, I'm more going to edit at home. You know, I'm going to do some research at home. I'm not going to sink in um, with my kid, even asleep in the next room. There's something fundamentally, you know, some, someone at any moment could wake up and need their mom. And that's not the person I need to be if I'm going somewhere 
pretty dark sometimes, you know? Yeah. So what drew you to say, I'm going to throw myself pretty deeply into the AIDS crisis in Chicago during the, during the 80s? Because I don't think there was, I mean, I, I like to say that I've read all the works and I want to get there of Rebecca Mackay, but um, was there, I don't think this has a, does this have a, has this theme popped up somewhere else or the subject matter in your other writings? Or is this something new that just you felt compelled? Yeah. Only a tiny bit. There's um, my last book was a short story collection, and there's one short story in there late in the book about AIDS in the New York art scene. So quite a different milieu. Um, however, I can't say that that led to this. I, I wrote that as I was researching the Great Believers and kind of getting into that world. So um, I, I think, and this is be interesting. I I I mean, I know that we're basically the same age since we went to high school together. Um, and that's got to be close, right? I don't know, Rabbi, if you're the same age as us, but um, you look like maybe you are. Um, so <laughs> that age meaning 31, just to be clear. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah, Rabbi's actually 29. So he's got a oh, awesome, years, awesome. Yeah, okay. Um, I think there was something really generational about my interest in the AIDS crisis. And certainly not everyone our age is interested in it, but um, you know, I was seven in 1985, which is the year this book starts. Um, I was a year young for high school. I don't know if you knew that. So you are older than me, but okay. um, I was seven in 1985. And um, that, you know, I was not out at the gay bars, sadly, as, as a seven-year-old, but that was the world I was acclimating myself to. You know, your job as a kid is to absorb this world, just as our kids now are absorbing this really strange world of quarantine. Um, this was what was out there. It, it, not enough. It wasn't on the news enough, but you stayed homesick from school. You watched Donahue. This is what's on. You watch the Oscars and the in memoriam reel is all these beautiful young men. This is what, this is the world that you are coming of age in. So I've had this, I think just lifelong interest and being an artist in a major city, I have a, you know, infinite number of gay friends. It's stayed in my mind. Um, you know, the book itself started in other areas. It, AIDS was originally going to be a subplot. There's this whole other plot about the art world and that was gonna be my main story. And I have figured, okay, it's the eighties. I have the art world. Someone will be dealing with AIDS in the background. And so, um, you know, it. you start writing though and you, you enter, like you're walking into a forest. You have no idea where you're gonna go you figure out where the gravity is, you figure out where the heart of this is, you figure out what you care about. And it turned out, I, this was what I wanted to write about. Um, you just kind of find yourself in it and then go, oh my God, what have I done? Yeah, no, I think, think as a, because you're right, as being an artist in Chicago, um, you can't, you'll, you'll know Boys Town real well, you know, just being an actor in Chicago for a while in, and you get very familiar with it. Um, and most of your friends and colleagues are like, right, are, are a lot are, um, are from the gay community. And, but even still, even with myself being an actor in Chicago for, for, for a little bit, um, I don't think I fully understood uh, the hurt and the pain and the fear that so many of our, our sisters and brothers were going through, that fear of like, once I get this, I'm dead. Like I'm done. Like I watched and the band played on and some of those old seminal movies from that time. Um, but I think you really captured that um, of just this, this, this is, and, and the rest of the society doesn't care. Like right now with COVID-19, everyone cares. Yeah. And, but, but yeah. then if you got it, I could see how even religion was probably telling you, well, it's your fault, oh, yeah. right? The president didn't speak about it till like what, two thirds into the whole epidemic. So it's 1987 like- 1987 was the first time Reagan said the word AIDS in public. Yeah. 
So, so all of that guilt that's already on you and that shame that kind of you gotten from society up to this point, and then there's this explosion of freedom, and then this this horrible epidemic comes, and then now you feel like the rest of the they're not helping you. The, it's hard for the healthcare, the insurance. You really capture that. Where um, in the second part of the show, I want to just go ahead first into which is this this you brought this up during our our phone call yesterday, um, which was uh, a creative empathy, right? And and how you need. Um, as a writer, to to really be empathic towards your characters, um, and as as people who follow, who are for, for me, is following Jesus, uh, for Rabbi, you know, just being a man of God. If we don't have empathy, um, there's no reason for us to, to even be in this business. Um, then we're just running a nonprofit, um, and so you you have to be empathic. You have to be able to put yourself in other people's shoes, even people who we're not called to like everyone, but we all call called to love everyone and for me to understand the quote unquote other i have to be in a place to put myself aside and put myself in their shoes and understand their plight um and so you have really given a a wonderful opportunity for people to do that um in, in a great believer so we're going to go in the second part of the show into what does that really mean and how does that give us hope right now in the 21st century where it is so black and white in our country where it's either you're on one side or the other um and no one's really willing to like kind of get their feet dirty and kind of get into the into the middle. So we're gonna take a quick break uh, here from the people who make this all responsible. And when we come back, we'll continue with part two with uh, the wonderful Miss Rebecca Mackay, uh, author of The Great Believers and many other works. You're listening to a priest and a rabbi podcast. If you haven't done so yet, make sure to subscribe and please leave a rating and a review, five-star rating and a positive review if you can. We certainly appreciate it. That is the best way to make sure that others out there just like you can find this podcast. If you want to get in contact with Father Christian and Rabbi Durbin, you can do so by emailing a priest and a rabbi at gmail.com. And the absolute best way to get a hold of the fellas is to call into the radio show. This podcast airs live on the radio every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. on WSTU 1450. And you can listen live online at WSTU1450.com. And if you want to join the show, you can call in to 772-220-9788. That's 772-220-9788. T-U. Hey everyone, this is Father Christian here on A uh, Priest and a Rabbi. So happy for you to be here on this podcast with us. And, and I want to uh, let you know that I have uh, started a uh, YouTube channel called Your Favorite Christian. And you can check it out on YouTube. And uh, every Monday, I drop a new episode. And it's always through the lens of faith, but taking on different topics such as dating, relationships, marriage, pop culture. Uh, I've done one recently where I went out to the art show and talked about how do we find our relationship with God through all the what all the latest artists are doing. Um, last week was what do women really want um, in a man uh, and interviewing different people to be a part of that. So uh, please check that out on YouTube. Subscribe, like, share, uh, put on the notifications so you get that every Monday. Um, I also want to let you know of uh, we this podcast wouldn't be here if it wasn't for a generous donor from St. Mary's Episcopal Church who wishes to remain anonymous. All he asked, though, was that um, the information gets out that St. Mary's Episcopal Church here in Stewart has a healing center. And so you can call if you're looking for a counselor or someone to be there for you during 
during a challenging time. And you can call the church at 772-287-3244. We also have a group of Stephen ministers who have been trained over 50 hours of training to be with you and walk with you during a time of crisis. They are not counselors. They are trained just to be more of the presence um, of, of Christ or, and, and walk with you during a time of crisis, whether it's a, a good crisis of having, oh my gosh, my daughter's about to get married, or if there's something a little bit heavier. So give us a call, 772-287-3244, and I thank that anonymous donor who uh, makes this all possible. All right, God bless you, and enjoy the rest of the podcast. All right, welcome back to part two of A Priest and a Rabbi. This is Father Christian Anderson along here with Rabbi Matthew Durbin from Temple Beth Chayam here in Steering, Florida. And with us um, is the wonderful Rebecca Mackay, not only a graduate of the high school that I graduated from in Lake Forest, Illinois, or Illinois, to those who speak French, but it's not a French name. It's Native American, I think. Isn't that right, Rebecca? Yeah, I think it's a French spelling of, it's like a French mingling of a Native American name. There we go. Uh, and so, but we have Rebecca McKay with, with us, uh, Pulitzer Prize nominee author, um, but also uh, she is going to be schooling us clergy folk um, on how to up our empathy game uh, because our, uh, our country is definitely in need of empathy. It is a, I think a medicine that will really help us to really understand the other as we look onto many different media platforms. Uh, it is constantly um, what is in is making uh, the other. It's always about those people, whether that or those people are BLM, those people are Trump, right, left, whatever it may be, straight, gay, just take your pick. Um, and we need to get in the middle here and, and really feel each other's pain and understand one another. Uh, and Rebecca, you did a, a really brilliant job of helping. I have to say, if I got some of my very conservative Christian colleagues uh, together and they read your book, I think they can't help by just having the heart of Jesus just to feel and understand the pain, even though they might not agree with the gay lifestyle, um, to really feel um, what, what does it really mean um, to be gay in America? What does it mean to be gay in America in the 80s? Mm. Um, and to know the history that's there and the persecution that has happened. Um, so whether you believe that these three times in the Bible where it says it's not a good thing, um, that you would hopefully through your book be able to understand that this is just a, a brother and sister who's gone through horrific pain and, uh, and not being accepted. And I don't know anywhere else in the Bible where it says, at least in the, um, where it says to just push that person out and, 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 and to hate on them. So, uh, thank you for that invitation, um, for, for, for empathy, um, you used the term uh, yesterday, uh, a writer must have uh, creative empathy. I believe that was the term. Uh, yeah, creative or imaginative, just, yeah. Imaginative empathy, thank yeah, you. Yeah, that was the term. <laughs> um, and I assume that when you're fostering and mentoring other writers, this is, this is a big piece of what you, you, you teach them? Yeah, yeah, it's, you know, I think there's this leap that you have to make. First of all, there's a cognitive leap as a human that you need to make. Like there's a cognitive developmental test that they do on toddlers where they have a little doll and they hide like a teacup somewhere and the doll watches it and they say, okay, now where's the doll going to look for the teacup? The doll's going to look where you hid the teacup because the doll saw it. Then they do it where they cover the doll's eyes and they move the teacup from that first spot to a second spot. And they say, where's the doll going to look for the teacup? And the younger kids or the less cognitively developed kids will still have the doll, we'll have the doll look in the new spot, even though the doll didn't see it, right? They're thinking like, oh, the doll knows because I know. Right. Whereas the more developed kids 
will understand that the doll still thinks it's in the first place. Did that make okay. any sense? This, this is complicated, right? But yeah. basically, um, it's, um, you know, I mean, it's it's obviously simpler than what I just explained because it's a test for toddlers. <laughs> but um, the idea being, can you make that shift to understand not what you know, but what someone else would know, what someone else would think? And as a kid, that's like a, a major, just a cognitive developmental thing. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of adults still struggle with that. Um, And even, you know, even on a cognitive level, honestly, I'll be working with um, beginning writers and they'll say something, you know, like, let's say this entire story that someone's writing is from Christian's point of view. Christian, you know, yawned, he felt tired, his muscles were sore, he got out of bed, he walked down the street. The light reflected off of his brown eyes. And you're like, wait a second, if I'm in his point of view, he's seeing his own eyeballs. How does that work? Mm. You aren't really in his head. You're, picture, you're not picturing being him. You're picturing looking at him. So that, you know, to go from there to this, this deep question of not only do I get that I'm in this person's head, I'm in this person's body, what do they know? But what would this person feel? What would this person's psychology be in this maybe imagined situation? Um, how would they react? How would they change? Um, that's most of the work of writing. Yeah, that was it. That, that, I've never thought about that, that as a writer where the difference of how you're commenting on them as a third person, or you're oh, yeah. actually really internalizing and walking within them. Um, right. You gave this in this uh, great story yesterday, and I'd love for you to share it, of how invested you have become sometimes in your in your characters. And I believe this was one, uh, you had a story about, you were so invested one time in experiencing the world of Yale, uh, yes. the, the lead from uh, from the great believers. And can you share that again of yeah. how that was when you're in the car? Yeah, I'll have to make sure this works on audio as well as on video I'll have to explain what I'm doing here. But um, yeah, no, I was, you know, I. I'm always telling my students writing does not equal typing. You know, you're writing even when you're not sitting at your keyboard mm. making new words, right? And so I I do try, like I'm brushing my teeth, I'm thinking about my book, I have a long drive. I'm gonna turn off my podcasts for a while and think about my book, think about the characters who are giving me trouble, whatever it is. Um, and I was driving on the Edens here in Chicago on the highway and um, thinking about the book. I was think I was thinking about Yale, my main character, but I was also thinking a lot about his friend who narrates a lot of the book. And I had to slam on my brakes suddenly. And without really knowing until afterwards what I was doing, I did that thing where you fling your right arm out to protect a passenger in the passenger seat, which was empty, right? There's no one there. I don't even have a purse on the passenger seat. Um, and, you know, I'm sure people have done that before with no one in the seat, but I, I rarely have anyone in the passenger seat. I, my kids are small. They sit in the back, right? This isn't, so I, I, it really was subconsciously in my mind, this character was riding with me somehow. This, this person, I wasn't picturing him sitting there. Um, I was just thinking about him. And it was, it was such a real presence for me that I did not think I was alone in the car, um, which, you know, uh, that's, um, fortunately in check for me. I mean, I think you go a, a step further with that. That becomes a problematic psychological issue. Um, but it's something that, that you know, those characters become just really, really fundamentally um, real to me, which is 
it's not that they're magic. It's not that they are real. It's not that some ghost is coming and talking to me. It's, it's an exercise of craft and empathy, which is hard work. Yeah, I think that the, I assume the, that, that that's something that doesn't, that doesn't happen immediately. I mean, I assume that that's something that over time yeah. you have to cultivate and, and, and really, you know, ponder and, and think about. Both in the sense of over my career that's grown and also just within each book that you write that grows because you start a new book and I don't know who these people are yet. I'm not, you know, I'm not hearing what they would say. I don't get them yet. Um, And you write your way there um, through bad first drafts and through um, just thinking about it. You know, it take you 300 pages to get to the place where you really understand. I think anyone who's lost someone very close to them knows that feeling of you go on with your life and a week or two later something happens. And although that person you lost is not there to comment on it, you know exactly what they would say, Mm -hmm. right? You can just hear their voice being like, oh my God, she would say this, right? And that sense of someone, although they're not there being so real, um, is very much what you eventually arrive at, hopefully, when you're working on a novel. So, Re- Rebecca, what would be, because there, I think empathy is something we need to work on, um, and it's a muscle. It could, it could, be, it could be developed, um, our mm-hmm. empathic muscles. And um, when Rabbi and I, we both went through a clinical pastoral education program where you either go to a hospital or you go wherever, a psych ward, and then you just spend three months just really listening and learning to live into empathy. Because how are you going to be able to pastor to someone, especially someone who's very different than you? I mean, I could, Rabbi could go into a room, the person is not even Jewish, you might not even, you might have negative feelings towards him, but he'd still be there to serve them and to be present and to feel their pain as they would sit on that hospital bed. Um, as 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 clergy, so we're inviting our congregants um, to become more empathic. Um, and now, so I ask you as a writer, I guess, what are some key ways where you can start, where you start trying to get yourself into the shoes of your characters? And I'm trying to make a translation here to how we um, as citizens <laughs> can do that for the other in our lives of saying, yeah. let me try to really understand just how this, what their daily walk is. That woman in that other neighborhood that I kind of look down on, I wanted to really try to understand what it's like to be her. Cause right now all I know is that I have sort of a judgment towards that person. Yeah. yeah. I think that there are two different components of that at least. I mean, there are many components, but the two main ones to me are, first of all, are you spending time on it? You know, because if you go, oh, I know this one thing about this person. What's life like for her? Oh, anyway, I got to make dinner. Um, you've considered it for half a second. And what you've probably considered in that half a second is your most logical, obvious, stereotypical assumptions. You have not spent that time. You've not dug deep to go, okay, wait, what would I do if I could not afford childcare in order to get a minimum wage job? what would my steps be? Not just like, yeah, that would be bad, but like sit there for half an hour and think about it. Like actually think about it. Um, so there's that. And, and I will say that um, asking and listening are the other side of that. I, you know, that empathy can only get you so far. Even if you're a really good person, um, you're just going to get things wrong. So, I, you know, there's no way that I could have written The Great Believers without hours and hours and hours of interview, reading archival, you know, gay weekly newspapers. One of the stories I'm always telling of myself is um, I had a scene 
that I had drafted, you know, this is early, but there's a scene early in the book where Yale, my main character, has lost track of his friends and he's looking for them. And he's in, he's on North Halstead, which is, you know, was and is the main gay strip with the gay bars. These are bars I know really well. This and is the point of the, the book where I thought you were about to go like supernatural. And I was like, oh, I didn't know this book was going to go in this <laughs> You're direction. You're not the only one who's thought that. Like this is the event on NBC or something like that or Lost or something. It was really, yeah. <laughs> go ahead, gone. And there is a logical explanation, but um uh, he's looking for them and he cannot find them anywhere. And in the, my earliest draft of that scene, he's walking down North Halstead, it's 1985. And I had him looking in the windows of these bars trying to find his friends. You cannot look through the window of a gay bar in 1985. Mm. As I learned, as I talked to people, and this wasn't something I could learn from a book or a documentary or that I would just have imagined. This was sitting across from someone you know, our second or third conversation, we're sitting there in Dunkin' Donuts and he's talking to me about his memories of the bar scene. And he mentions that the windows of all these bars would have been painted black or heavy curtains or whatever. Um, and I'm going, oh my gosh, and making a note under the table so he doesn't think I'm dumb, you know. But I've told that, I, I've given that anecdote to gay men our age. And they're like, what? And they don't get it either, right? Because that, by the time they were seeing those bars, that was not the case anymore as it is as it isn't now um if i had gotten that wrong okay it's one detail in a novel what but i would be fundamentally misrepresenting the stigma of being gay in 1985 chicago the ways that even in this neighborhood that had so much freedom relative to the past the the windows are still black the way the fact that so many people going to those bars were closeted and could not have been seen by an employer or a family member um, it would have done a disservice to lived history. And I would be fundamentally misrepresenting that to readers who didn't know um, and taking off readers who did know, right? Right. So um, that is not something that I could good person my way into. You know, <laughs> I could not just sit there and be really empathetic and know this information. Yeah. This is a matter of educating myself and educating myself by listening, asking, um, getting to know people well enough that they could be really honest with me. Because that was an easy thing to talk about. Is talk there about sex and death, a lot harder. Rebecca, is it, was there ever in, in your mind almost the danger of when I interview these people and I learn their sacred and beautiful narratives and their histories, that um, that empathy and that empathetic way of not trying to make it about me, but really listening to their stories? Oh, yeah. I mean, it... it I am this. I am a person that everyone tells secrets to, which helps a lot. Um, I, I think it's just because I really enjoy what everyone's saying, and I, I have a responsive face or something. But I, I get everyone's dirt, um, and um, I think that you know, people who don't maybe have that um, that instinct to begin with, I think that's something you can cultivate by listening, right? Um, but I ended up in honestly like a therapist role with a lot of the people I interviewed. They were revisiting traumas from 30 years ago. Um, in some cases, these are people who didn't talk about it very frequently at all. Um, and in some cases, there are people who talked frequently about this. For instance, um, the two doctors who started the AIDS unit at Illinois Masonic Hospital, they're interviewed very frequently. But I was asking them such weird questions where I was like, where in the lounge was the fish tank? literally was one of my questions. And then they start arguing with each other about it. But that throws them back into a mode of memory that's not usual for them. 
I was never, I felt like everything that anyone told me was sacred information and that I was honored to be there. I'm never going to be tempted to override what they're saying with what I want to hear. Um, that's, I can go home and do whatever I want in my novel. That's my world. And I can include stuff, not include stuff, change stuff. Um, but I'm in that space of listening and learning and every, any sentence might contain something vital for me, right? I, it's not just, I'm listening to you because I'm good. It's honestly, there's something kind of Machiavellian about it. I'm listening to you because I need this. Also, I, I really care, but the next sentence out of your mouth might be another thing like those blacked out windows that I didn't know that I need to know. Um, which is, I think, a you know, a good mode for listening always, <laughs> you know, whether or not you actually need to know it. What if you did? What if the next thing someone says is that important? Yeah, the, the, the art of listening, it's, 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 a, it's a lost art, right? So yeah. now what we see a lot of times is just you hear enough so you can rebuttal and get your, get your, so you can win the argument or whatever. That's what we see a lot. Uh, but actually listening, if we saw our leaders, uh, specifically our political leaders, just to really sit down and imagine what a debate would look like if they really honestly said, who can listen the best and really try to understand yeah. and kind of like say, okay, what I'm hearing you say is this, 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 and this. And not because I want to attack you, or break you down. I'm just trying to understand who you are uh, as, as a person who has very different views than me. Uh, because I believe that even though we are very different, we are still united as a human race. And there's something like as a, as a Christian, we would say the spirit, the same spirit goes through me. And so if I'm going to try to find some love that I have for you, even though you vote for Trump and I vote for Biden, we're still going to find this love because I'm curious. I'm honestly curious to know more about you. And you have this, Rebecca, what makes you uh, probably one of the many things that make you such a great writer. So you're extremely curious um, and in love with, with your characters. Uh, yeah. you, don't, you don't sense any judgment. Uh, I don't sense any judgment towards your characters at all. Every single character doesn't have like, well, this person's meant to be here because they're the bad character and this person's going to be the person right. who switches. You, know, you, you allow everyone to have their humanity fully explored. So we could all identify, be like, oh, I might make that choice and that decision. And then also I might make that choice, you know? Yeah. You know, one of the things that I'm telling my students always, you know, of course, you need you need conflict in order to have a story, right? You can't write a story where everyone's just going to the picnic. Um, so you're going to have a conflict and the to have a genuine, compelling conflict, you have to have two or more sides to this, two or more people who are all right. You know, you have to believe that whether or not you literally believe that different matters. So, you know, in The Great Believers, um, one thing I had to deal with early 1985, when my book starts, that's the year that the test for what we now know as HIV became available. Huge debate surrounding this test. And I can look back from the, you know, from this century when I'm writing this book and say, yep, it was an accurate test. You should know your status. You should get tested every three months if you're sexually active. Like, that's my 21st century perspective. Um, I might have just said that we were in the 20th century. I don't, I, ignore me if I did that. <laughs> the 21st century perspective, right? Um, whereas at the time, these viewpoints, you know, someone might have agreed with that. Someone else might have been saying, yeah, the, the government could subpoena those test results at any moment. Or if that result goes in my record, I could lose my health insurance forever. Or these tests are fake. They're not real. Uh, the, you know, these results are unreliable. Um, or these results are reliable, but if someone finds out that they have it, they're now a suicide risk. Yeah. If someone finds out that they don't have it, are they going to think they're immune and go have riskier behavior? 
Or are they going to have so much survivor's guilt that they are now a suicide risk? There are mm. all these different perspectives on this. I'm getting this again through my research. You know, I'm able to go back and read letters to the editor, talk to people about what was going on at the time. I, as I assign those viewpoints to different characters, in order for that to work, I need to genuinely believe with that character, the things that they believe. I need to give them good reasons for believing those things. Mm -hmm. And obviously I don't literally believe all of those conflicting points of view, but there's that suspension just as a reader sometimes or a movie viewer needs a suspension of disbelief. An author needs a suspension of self yeah. in order to go in and embody those things. And I think that's what uh, you were mentioning before that there, you did have one concern a pushback on your novel. So you yourself are a uh, you know straight woman who uh, did not. You were seven during the beginning of this whole epidemic, and you was there some concern that like who am I to write this yeah. this this novel, right? Um, yeah. And so uh, so was there pushback from anyone from the gay community being like uh, you kind of um, missed it, and I don't appreciate what you did. Honestly, um, like less than a tenth of a percent, if if that. Um, I was really braced for it, um, I, which I think it was a healthy sense of terror. I think that that fear pushed me to research harder, to double check everything more, to in the end, you know, some of those people I'd interviewed, they read the book. They're going through it with a fine tooth comb of just, we wouldn't have said this, you know. Mm. Um, it was it was useful panic. Um, and I think that you know, for artists, uh, you're always going to be writing about someone different than you. I'm not going to fill a 300 page novel entirely with white college educated straight 42 year old women. That would be bananas, yeah. right? Like, what kind of book would that be? You're always going to be writing the other. So then, you know, of course, it's more fraught when you're writing about trauma, when you're writing about traditionally marginalized voices, this gets more complicated. Um, but am I doing the work that I need to do to do that successfully? And, and honestly, um, the support from the LGBTQ community has been overwhelming. Mm. Um, the, the most honored that I've been, and this is never a position I would have put myself in, but um, several times, quite a few times, an older gay man has asked me to inscribe the book to a younger gay friend and said, he wasn't there for this. He doesn't know. I was trying to explain it to him and he doesn't get it. And so I need him to read your book. And to be that conduit, that is nothing I ever would have in my most hubris, hubristic dreams, never would have put myself in that space. So yeah. I've been overwhelmed have you, by it. Have you, Rebecca, have you ever, um, throughout the course of all your writing and everything else, I mean, have you ever doubted yourself or doubted your writing and look back and say, is it really authentic? Do, you know, have you ever doubted Constantly. yourself? Constantly. Um, there's some quote, I'm going to mangle it by the um, writer Walter Benjamin, that's like the, the finished product is the death mask of the conception, meaning like you have this idea in your head and then as soon as you put it out there, you're like, oh, I just killed that thing. <laughs> that's not what I meant to do. Um, it's just, it's never what you wanted. It's never exactly it. Um, you have revision, which is, a, which is great. You don't get revision in, in all art forms. Um, but no, you're constantly doubting what you're doing. You're essentially, I'm spending, you know, I'm spending five years to write a 300 page lie and then ask you to pay $26 for it. That's bizarre, right? Like, what am I doing? I have 26 letters. I have 26 little characters and I'm using those 
to try to get you to hallucinate basically the same thing that I'm hallucinating. That's my job. That's really weird, right? Yeah. And I mean, it's it's weird to begin with. And then you get into a certain story you're writing and you're like, this story, what am I doing? Who are these people? Who wants to read about um, this thing? You know, so um, there's constant doubt. It's it's a constant, you know, you're, you're building the bridge as you're standing on it. Yeah. That's terrifying. Sure. It's also really fun, but it's terrifying. <laughs> well, I gotta tell you, Rebecca, as um, for the rabbi and myself, as two people who, our job is really to be a storyteller. Um, and that's a big part of our, of our job. And I could preach all day and I could preach about the systematics of Christian theology. Um, but when I tell the story and I invite people to walk into the shoes of that story and to feel the pain, whether it's my own personal story or someone else's, um, that's when people respond and say, thank you. You pulled me into something and I felt something and maybe now I see things differently. Um, if I just come from my head the whole time and eh, people be like, well, okay, whatever. They could read that in a book, uh, right. but you invite me into a deeper world and a different way to see things. If you break my heart now, we can have a different conversation. Um, and so you teach us uh, today a key part of that, um, which is you do have to love the other and you do have to, to love them to really understand and to really invite people um, to, to walk in their shoes and for us to really have any hope of changing our hearts and feeling each other's pain and being healers, um, as the great uh, Catholic theologian Henry Nouwen would say, being wounded healers of how we fulfill one another. Uh, yeah. Our wounds become our greatest uh, parts, our places for for healing. So, uh, Rebecca, uh, I wish we could go on and on, but unfortunately, um, Rush Limbaugh is after us, and so he's kicking us off. So, um, but in any event, people want to find more of you. Um, it's pretty easy to do that, but the, the easiest thing for them is to go to RebeccaMackay.com. It is. I'm also on Twitter. If, if the right person tweets at me, I'll totally find yearbook photos of you, Christian. I'll try to find um, <laughs> a freshman year. I would try to find a picture of that. If you, if you tweet at me and ask for pictures of Christian, I will find them for you. <laughs> and I will try to find, and I will find some Midsummer Night right Dream now. photos. Right I'm not on Twitter, Rabbi. <laughs> but I'm going to find Midsummer Night's Dream because you were in Midsummer Night's Dream. No, I wasn't. I think I worked tech or something for that. Romeo and Juliet? No, no, all the musicals. It was all the musicals, man. The all right, all right. Yeah. All right, I'm getting, I'm getting you. I'm getting you. All yeah. right, it, the, the Twitter war is on. Well, God bless you all. We're going to see you here uh, next Friday in a priest of Rabbi Rebecca McKay. God bless you. We're so thankful to have you on here. Uh, catch the podcast if you just tuned in, a priest and a rabbi podcast. Peace and God bless. <laughs>